Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from the third book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, but God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, A serpent deceived me, and I ate. This morning we're in week two of this short three-week series we began last Sunday that's called Spiritual Warfare. And what we said last week is that the title of this series, Spiritual Warfare, Sounds very strange to our ears, almost offensive to our ears, but it wouldn't have sounded strange to most of the people that have ever lived, and it actually doesn't sound strange to most people living around the world today. Because the the question that everybody has to answer is, why is the world so messed up? Why are we so messed up? Because it clearly is, and, and we clearly are. And what we said last week is that all of the stories from all of history, from every language, every culture, from all mankind, have all said the same thing, which is the same thing that the Bible says, which is that the way you explain that is you have to posit that there's such a thing as supernatural good and that there's such a thing as supernatural evil, that there are these two sides of war and that human beings are caught in the middle. Everybody has always said that, and for the first time ever in human history, today we in the modern West have started to doubt that. And we say, well, you know, if we could just learn enough about ourselves through the sciences, if we can just develop the right medicines, you know, to to heal ourselves physically and mentally, and we can just develop the right educational policies, better schools, and the right government policies, the right laws, then we can solve all of our problems. We can solve evil because it's, these are natural problems, so they have natural solutions. 
And what all the stories have always said and what the Bible says in response to that is good luck. Good luck with that. Because you're never going to solve evil with natural solutions because it's not a natural problem. It's a supernatural problem. It's buried. Evil is buried deep within our hearts. And the story you just heard read tells us how that happened, how it got there. If it's buried deep within our hearts, how did it get there? Well, that's what Genesis 3 is all about. It's a story that uh, doesn't have a title originally, but it's become known as The Fall. The Fall, and it's the story of the fall of mankind and all creation with us away from God. What the story says is, it's a fall, but it didn't happen by accident. We were pushed. There was a very intentional strategy and design and plan here. And we better understand what that is, because the exact same way it happened in Genesis 3 is the same way it happens today. Some of you have friends who have fallen away from God. For those of you who are parents, one of the greatest fears of most parents is they'll raise their kids in the faith and then their, their child will fall away from God at some point. Or forget your, your friends or your kids. Some of you have fallen away from God. You believed at one point and then all of a sudden you didn't believe. And the question is whether it's your kids or your friends or, or you, you yourself, how does that happen? How does a person fall away from God? Well, Genesis 3 tells us there's a template, there's a formula. It's pretty predictable and mundane, actually. It always happens the same way. And it happens in three steps. First, there's a sneer for the heart. Second, there's a lie for the mind. And then third, there's an act of the will. A sneer for the heart, a lie for the mind, and an act of the will. Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon. We'll take them one at a time. So first, a sneer. A sneer for the heart. Satan comes to Eve, and as, as we said, it's very intentional, very thought out. His goal is to get her to switch sides, away from, his, or away from God's side over to his side. But, of course, he doesn't come right out and say that, you know, come over to my team. Instead, he's got this very cunning, very subtle strategy. The, the word the passage uses is he's crafty. And his opening salvo is to, to Eve. You heard it in the passage. He says, Eve, did, did God really say? And the key word in that question is the word really. Did God really say? And it can also be translated actually. You know, did, he, did he actually say? What it shows us is that Satan isn't doubting that God said this. He's mocking it. Somebody says, did, did he really say that? They're not saying, they're not asking, like, factually, did he really say that? They're, they're making fun of it. I can't believe he said that. Really? Really say that? I don't know if you remember this. There, were, there used to be a whole segment on uh, Saturday Night Live based on this word, really. It was called really with Seth and Amy, and it was part of Weekend Update. And all it was is they would just, you know, uh, recount a news story, summarize it in a sentence or two, you know, say it matter-of-factly, and then afterwards just say that one word. Really? Really? And that was it. That was the whole bit. And it was, it was really funny. It's this, this word of mocking. Really. That's what Satan is doing here with Eve. Mocking God's command. Did he really say that? 
What it shows us is that falling away from God never starts with an idea. It never starts with an argument, a proposition. It always starts with not an argument, but an atmosphere and an attitude. So going back to this phenomenon we mentioned just a second ago about how kids fall away from God. You know, this isn't an irrational fear on the part of parents. It happens all the time where a kid's raised in the faith and they go away to college and they lose their faith. Why does that happen? Well, we assume that it's this matter of, you know, college, university, and it's all this uh, rational, scientific inquiry, and God just can't take the heat. But really, it's not quite like that. I want to read you an excerpt from uh, something C.S. Lewis wrote. This is from The Great Divorce, and it's this fictional uh, exchange between these two old college friends talking about how they lost their faith. And one guy says to the other, he says, let's be frank. Our opinions, in other words, our, our new enlightened opinions, our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. We were afraid of ridicule and having allowed ourselves to drift, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached a point at which we no longer believed. That part where he says, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires. You know, it's not like these 18-year-olds that are trying to decide, is God real or not? It's not like um, they're totally disinterested in objective, neutral third parties that can judge this accurately. Because if God is real, then they can't have sex with whoever they want, and they can't get drunk every weekend. But if he's not, then they can. So it puts a lot of weight on the scale. And then they are put in this atmosphere, this atmosphere of mocking. That's what he's saying. He said we were afraid of ridicule. There's been tons of books and essays over the last 50 years saying, look, let's be honest, we we all know that universities ceased to be bastions of free thinking a long time ago. All of the big questions are assumed. They're not debated anymore. They are assumed. And if you disagree with the party line on any of the big questions, one of two things will happen. Worst case scenario, you get attacked by an angry mob, like we saw happen last month at Middlebury. Best case scenario, best case scenario, you get laughed at. Nobody's going to debate with you about this anymore. They'll just laugh at you. You you believe that? Really? Wow. And that's what Satan is doing here with Eve. He's creating an atmosphere, creating an attitude. Because if he knows if he can set the mood, then, then the battle's already half won. Now, before we move on to the next point, I want to clarify something here because you know there's this uh, stereotype that religious people have of, of being overly serious and humorless you know and and so here I am saying Satan mocks Satan makes fun and is the corollary of that that then people of faith should never make fun of anything that there's no humor for for people of faith and it's not that what, what it is what it comes down to is that there are two different types of humor Two different types of making fun. There's a good kind and a bad kind. Not bad as in, like, not funny, but bad as in truly evil. 
And uh, the example of this, we'll use the same, we'll go back to something we talked about last week, which is Shakespeare. So uh, in 1960, there was this essay titled The Globe, written by uh, W.H. Auden, who's one of the 20th century's greatest poets and literary critics, and also a Christian. And what Auden says is, he makes this distinction between good humor and bad humor. And he says, if you look back at the old ancient uh, Greek comedies, which were obviously pagan, he says there, that's the bad kind of humor. Because what you have is, you have the audience at the end of the play, the audience is all laughing, and the characters on the stage are in tears. But he says with Shakespeare, which has been influenced by a Christian worldview, the audience and the characters are laughing together. So let me, re- let me read you the quote. I kind of summarized it already. But he says, Christian comedy is based upon the belief that all men are sinners. No one, therefore, whatever his rank or talents, can claim immunity from the comic exposure. While classical comedy believes that rascals should get the drubbing they deserve, Christian comedy believes that we are forbidden to judge others and that it's our duty to forgive each other. In Christian comedy, the characters are exposed and forgiven. When the curtain falls, the audience and the characters are laughing together. Now, this doesn't need to be a, a highbrow distinction, you know, Auden and Shakespeare and, and Greek tragedies. This is something very basic that we all know about and talk about all the time, which is the difference between are you laughing with me or are you laughing at me? And it's not like those are like just a shade off from one another. It's not like those are two things that are closely related. Those are opposites. Those are complete opposites. Because laughing with someone is one of the greatest joys of life. And being laughed at, there is no deeper pain than being laughed at. There's a good kind of humor, and there's a bad kind. And this bad kind comes from Satan. This elevating yourself, exalting yourself, mocking somebody else. And I mean, I don't have to tell you which of these two kinds is more common in New York City. You know, clearly the bad kind, clearly the snarky, cynical, corrosive type of humor, where not we're all kind of funny and we all need to laugh at each other, but they're kind of funny. I was talking to a friend in the city recently. He was talking about uh, taking the kids down to Disney World recently, and his remark was, well, you know, pretty interesting people watching down there. And we all know what he meant by that, because that's how New York is, looking down on others, making fun of others, laughing at others that aren't as cool as we are. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's from the pit of hell. It's, it's, from, <laughs> it's from Satan. That's the devil's M.O., is to, to get you to mock Because if he can get you to mock and look down on somebody else, he can get you to mock and look down on God. That's the first step of falling away from God. It starts with the sneer, the sneer for the heart, the bad kind of humor. It moves on to the second phase. So second section of the sermon, first a sneer for the heart. Secondly, this morning, a lie for the mind. A sneer for the heart, a lie for the mind. And after he's got this attitude and this mood created with Eve, then the lie goes down easy. He does eventually present a proposition, an idea. 
but he doesn't lead with it because if he had led with it, then her defenses would have been up and she would have, you know, kind of rationally combated and said, well, no, that's not true. But once he's created the mood, the lie goes down easy. So what's the lie? Well, it's about this uh, fruit, about this commandment, and it's a dispute about facts. You know, God had said, if you eat the fruit, you will die. So assertion of fact. Um, Therefore, don't eat the fruit. You know, the rule is pretty straightforward. Don't eat the fruit because I don't want you to die. And Satan says, no, no, you won't die. not only will he not die, but, it, but if you eat the fruit, your life will actually get a lot better. Not eating the fruit is what's holding you back. Not eating the fruit is what's making your life less fun and less fulfilling than it should be. And how many times has he, he used this exact same lie on you? No, 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 it's not. You, you won't. It won't be bad if you do that, no. It's the exact opposite. The fact that you're not doing that, the fact that you're not engaging in that desire, the fact that you're not allowing yourself that pleasure, that freedom, that's what's holding you back. That's what's ruining you. And you say, yeah, 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 he's right. And so you do it. And you wake up in the morning, or you wake up the next week, or the next month, or the next year, and you realize you've been had flat out lying just outright just this is what god says this is the truth and he just says the exact opposite and gets away with it no you won't die they do they eat the fruit and they do die and instead of what he says of your life will be so much better all of a sudden they bring all this chaos and pain and suffering into their lives that wasn't there before now it's not just it's never this lie is never just about the particular thing. Whatever it is, you know, this, in this case is the commandment to not eat the fruit, whatever it is in your life, whatever moral choice it is. The lie is never about just that issue. If you peel back the layers, there's always a lot deeper lie underneath. Because look at what he says. It, it, this isn't a, a shotgun lie that he has here where you kind of scatter shot. It's a very precisely aimed sniper lie. Look what he goes after. What Satan doesn't go after is he doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't say, Eve, you know, God isn't really real anyway. Because Eve was just talking to God, so that wouldn't make any sense. He doesn't even go after the command of God. He, said, he doesn't say, Eve, God didn't tell you not to eat of this fruit. Well, Eve knows God told her not to eat the fruit. He doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't go after the command of God. What he attacks, what he contradicts is the goodness of God. He attacks the motives of God, the love of God. What he says is, Eve, yeah, sure, God is there and he made this command. But when he made it, he didn't have your best interests at heart. He didn't do it for your good. He didn't do it out of love for you. He, he did this. He said this to keep you down. In other words, at the end of the day, what is the lie that Satan is trying to drive into the heart of the human race? The lie is... You can't trust him. You cannot trust God. And so you have to make these decisions for yourself. And that lie is in your heart, and that lie is in my heart. It is sunk in. And you have to assume that it's sunk. You say, how do you know? How do you know that that lie is sunk in? Well, otherwise, temptation makes no sense. How do you explain temptation? You know, we have the Bible. We have, life comes with an instruction manual. 
written by the Creator for our good, for our benefit. So you have this command for your good, and you read it and you think, well, I don't know about that. Well, okay, why? Like, where do you get the idea that somehow that commandment wouldn't be for your good? That makes no sense unless in the back of your mind there's this doubt that maybe God doesn't have my best interest at heart. Maybe the commandment isn't for my good. Maybe I can't trust him. Eric Erickson, the famous child psychologist, you remember this from uh, Psychology 101, you know, he's got those eight stages of development. And at each stage, there's a crisis that the, the individual has to resolve. So for infancy, for an infant, the crisis that every infant has to resolve is the crisis of trust versus mistrust. Can I trust my parents? And if the child learns that they can't trust their parents, whether from abuse or neglect or whatever it is, then it's going to be very difficult for that child to ever trust again. Well, that's exactly what happens at the beginning of the human race, in our infancy. But it's not because our father messes up. It's not because of any fault of his. It's because we come under the influence of a liar. Dads, I want you to think about what it would be like for you if you do everything right for your kids. You take care of your kids. You meet your kids' need. But somehow or other, uh, they come under the influence of somebody, whether it's at school or uh, a relative or whatever it is, some person that all through their growing up is, is pulling them off to the side for these private chats saying, you know, you can't trust your dad. You, you really can't trust your dad. And if you think about, as a human father, if you think about how that would make you feel, if you found out about that, then you will instantly understand the righteous anger of God. But more to the point, forget about your anger, it's also really going to mess up your kid. And that's what happens to us, is that the liar comes along and tells us you can't trust him. That's step two of falling away from God. So first, there's a sneer for the heart, this attitude. Second, there's a lie for the mind. And then third and lastly, the last thing that happens is this act, this act of the will. And once he's already set the mood and then got us to believe this lie, the act of the will is a foregone conclusion. You know, this is just signing your name on the, the dotted line. Because uh, the, the battle's already won. When, once, he, once he gets us to laugh at God and then to doubt God's love for us, then of course we'll, we'll go ahead and, and distrust him and commit this act of disobedience. But what I like about the act is that it underscores what the, what the core issue is here. Because what people always want to know is, well, why eating a fruit? You know, like, uh, that's, that's the, I mean, it seems so harmless. That's the thing that causes the, the human race to fall away from God? Well, I mean, we got the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, lying and stealing and murder. Why not one of those things? It would make a lot more sense. But what this underscores, when it's just something that, that seems so innocent, is it underscores the key issue, which is do you trust him or do you not? Because, you know, so think about the Ten Commandments. Some of them are a lot more intuitive than others. So do not murder. Well, that makes sense. Like, I can understand why I shouldn't do that. But then others of the Ten Commandments, same list, same level of priority, are way less intuitive. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
right alongside with do not murder. Well, it, it doesn't seem quite as important, you know. Well, why do I need to do that? And what it raises is this question of why am I obeying? Am I obeying because it makes sense? Am I obeying the Ten Commandments because I get them? Or because I trust the one who gave them to me? This is something I talk about with our girls. So uh, Anna, our second daughter, will do this thing from time to time where, you know, so it's bedtime, Anna, get into your bed. And why? You know, why? She'll say, why, why do I have to get into my bed? And it, it, she just, you know, she's getting defiant. Why? And sometimes I don't handle it very well. Um, I'm not going to tell you one of those stories. I'm going to tell you one of the times, one of the few times that I did handle it well. This was last week. He's doing this thing again. Well, why do I have to get into my bed? And so I, I say, Anna, come here. And I, she's, she's already up in her bed, but she won't lay down. So I pull her in close and put my arm around her. And I'm whispering in her ear. And I say, I'm going to tell you two things. And one of them is less important than the other. And so I said, the less important thing is, I've told you a lot of times why you have to go to bed, which is that if you don't get sleep, you're going to be really grumpy and angry tomorrow, and your day will really not be very fun. But I said, that's not really the important part. I said, the important thing is, in our house, mom and dad make the rules. And you don't actually get to ask why. And it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to you or not, because it's our house, and in our house... Mom and dad say what happens, and the kids don't get to challenge it. They don't get to ask why. They just have to do it. And when you don't live in our house someday, that you don't have to do these things. But right now, you do just because I'm the dad, and mom's the mom, and you're the kid. And that's what it is here. You know, that's what it is here. Why? Why, why should I not eat the fruit? Well, he did tell you. You know, he, he actually gave us the answer. You're going to die. But even if you don't believe that, even if that doesn't make sense to you, there's still this question of, do you trust him or not? Do you trust your father or not? And when Adam and Eve take the bite of the fruit, they're saying decisively, no, we do not. No, we cannot trust God. We have to live on our own. And with that bite, is the fall of mankind. It's impossible to overstate how tragic this is. Back to Anna, you know, I've shared several stories recently about reading Bible stories at night with the girls. And one of my strongest memories from the last couple of years of reading a Bible story is with this story, we're, we're reading it, you know, we read about God's command and uh, read about the serpent coming in. And Anna has this thing where if things get really tense or if something bad is about to happen, like in a, a movie or in a story, she can't handle it and she has to get up. You know, she can't, she can't sit there, she has to get up and pace around. And so we're reading this about, you know, and the serpent comes and says, you know, you won't die. And she gets up and she's pacing around and she's wringing her hand. She says, they're going to eat it. They're going to eat it. <laughs> and... It, what it did, you know, is, you know so he, she, when Eve's about to eat the fruit, she said, no, no, no. And it underscored for me just how much was riding on this, you know, just what a big deal this really was, us falling away from God, because we've all done it. It's not just Adam and Eve. We've all done it. So as we close, how do you undo it? 
How do you get back to God if you've fallen away? Well, the steps are, are pretty simple. You just do the reverse of what happened the first time. So we saw the process of what it looks like to fall away from God. To undo it, very straightforward. We just go in reverse order. So it ends with you committing this act of disobedience because you don't trust God. The only way to get back to God, the only way is to obey. To obey even when it doesn't make sense. And to say, I kind of mistrust him. I'm not sure this is for my own good, but I'm going to do it anyway. And when you obey, then you find out, oh, wait a minute, it, it did work out. And then all of a sudden the lie loses credibility. And then all of a sudden the, the sneer, this mocking attitude toward God loses credibility. That's the, that's the way you get back. It's very, very simple. problem is it's a lot easier said than done. You know, how, do, how do you do that? Who has the strength? Who has the power? Once this lie has been wedged in our hearts to obey like that. And you probably see where I'm going with this. It's the place that we went at the end of last week's sermon, and it's the place that we end up a lot of weeks, which is at the cross. We said last week, we looked last week at this this exchange between Jesus and the devil in the wilderness, very similar exchange to the one we're looking at this morning. We noted the similarities in the passages last week. What we didn't have a chance to talk about last week was this line at the end of that Matthew 4 passage where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And Jesus wins that, that first round easily. You know, Satan tempts him and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But what it says at the end of the passage is, so Satan left him until an opportune time. In other words, Satan says, fine, you won round one, that's okay, I, I'll be back, I can, I can try again. And we see, you know, there's probably lots of times throughout Jesus' life where he does battle with Satan again. But we see probably the most important time at the end of his life. And again, the parallels between that and Genesis 3 are really striking. Because what you see is Jesus in a garden being tempted by the devil regarding a command about a tree, the cross. And with Adam and Eve, God had said, don't eat of this tree, and if you obey my command about the tree, you'll live. With Jesus, it was actually a much harder command. God had said to Jesus, if you obey my command about the tree, you'll die. And Satan's trying to get him not to do it. And what we see, we never see Jesus ever say anything like this anywhere else. Never praise like this anywhere else. But we can see that Satan's getting to him. Because what he says to God is, he says, God... I don't want to do this. I don't understand. There's got to be some other way. Please don't make me obey. Please don't make me go through with this. And Satan is sitting there listening, thinking, yes. But then he, Jesus says the line that, that breaks the spell, essentially, which is, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And with those words, with that obedience to go to the cross, to obey God's command about the tree, even though it doesn't make sense, that's the reversal. That's the reversal of Eden and the reversal of the fall. Because in Eden, we tried to exalt ourselves to a place that only God deserved to be. And at the tree at Calvary, Jesus lowers himself to the place that only we deserve to be. He takes our place. And Doing that, in doing that, what he does is he completely 
completely delegitimizes the lie and the sneer. Because the lie is you can't trust God. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God doesn't love you. Well, okay, then why is he climbing the tree of death for me? Why is he dying on my behalf if he doesn't love me? Completely delegitimizes the lie. The lie becomes absurd. Not only that, it, it also undoes the sneer. We'll close with this. I've told you many times before, one of my preaching heroes is this guy named Tim Keller. He's pastored uptown for the last 30 years, just announced his retirement last month. Uh, and I've listened to and read hundreds of his sermons and plagiarized from him freely. Um, so Keller's hero, my hero's hero, the guy that Keller had read hundreds and listened to hundreds of sermons and plagiarized from freely, was this guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a minister in London. And Martin Lloyd-Jones had this thing he used to say about how he could tell the difference between a, a Pharisee, kind of a self-righteous person, moralistic person, uh, on the one hand, versus a true Christian on the other, somebody that really understood God's grace and God's salvation. And what he said is a really easy test. All you have to do is ask a person, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? He said the Pharisees would always get really uptight about it, offended almost, because they would see it as kind of an indictment of their character. Well, well, yes, of course. What do you mean? Of course I'm a, a Christian. But he said, the way you can tell a true Christian is that if, if you ask a person, are you a Christian? If, if they really are, their response is to laugh. And to say, yeah, I know it's bizarre, you know, me, of all people, a Christian. Uh, but yes, I am. And obviously that's the, the type of laughter that's the exact opposite of the sneer of the serpent. Not laughing at others. Certainly not laughing at God, but laughing at yourself. Un, unable to believe that you've been saved by grace, that you've been called holy because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we confess. We confess that we have believed the lie. We confess that we have gone our own way and disobeyed you. Because in a moment of weakness, your rule didn't really make sense to us, and so we thought we'd just do it our way. And we see how much that has cost us in terms of pain and suffering, but we also see how much that has cost you, having to come and die on our behalf to reverse this curse. We ask now that because of Christ, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would undo what's been done in our hearts. That seeing Jesus upon the cross would be an antidote to the poison of the serpent. And that by turning our face toward you, you would help us to trust you again, to trust that you do love us, that you do have our best interest at heart, and that through following you, we can have life. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.